Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, welcome. My name is Alex, and I am dressed for fall. Uh, I decided I couldn't handle this hot weather anymore, so I'm wearing a sweater, I'm wearing boots, and I'm channeling it for you people. We're going to make it happen uh, together. Um, And uh, if not, I'll just sweat. We are in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, but we had this moment, this opportunity to pause, to to do some of the things that you saw today, to celebrate 40 years of a food bank that has been about, I would suggest, just that, as we'll learn, being salt and light to the world around us. Uh, As we go through today, we're going to land at this table. Uh, If you grew up in the church, you might know this as communion. You might know it as the Lord's Supper. You might know it as the Eucharist. You might know it uh, as Mass. It's this moment where we're going to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection for us, but also celebrate his teaching, his bringing, his inaugurating of his kingdom in this world. It's this contemplative and celebratory moment that we get to land at together. And we also recognize that as well as celebrating 40 years of a food bank today, churches all over the world are celebrating what's called Worldwide Communion Sunday. So as we try and land this very complex ship today, we're gonna try and land with one of our missionaries overseas who's gonna lead us to this table together as we celebrate the fact that South, this church that you and I are a part of, has been a gift to people people who live as close as Panama, uh, the street, not the country, but as live as far away as Japan, as China, as all sorts of different places all over the world. That is who we are called to be. A few years ago, I woke up one early one morning, as I like to do sometimes. It just gives me this chance to kind of get a jump on the day, to have this moment of contemplation in amongst all the other things that are going on. Uh, and I was disappointed, I will own, to see one of my kids stumbling from their bedroom far earlier than I'd accounted on them being awake. I won't mention which one of the kids that it is, because they're now at an age where they try and charge me for stories, like they want money. They're like you used a story about me, where's my $5, where's my $10, depending on how embarrassing the story is. Uh, And this daughter uh, stumbled towards me. Uh, and, 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 and with a grumpy look on her face, declared that it was too bright out here and that the light should be turned down. I gently suggested that perhaps meant that she wasn't ready to be awake and that she should go back to bed, but she insisted, no, she was awake and she was not only awake, she was hungry. Uh, So I took her to the kitchen and found her favorite cereal, poured it into a bowl, poured milk on it, liberally dosed sugar on it to make sure that she was happy and didn't bother me again, uh, and then went back to work. A few moments later, I heard this cry from the other room saying, Daddy, it doesn't taste very good. You can imagine the frustration, and perhaps you've experienced the frustration. When you know perfectly well she ate that cereal every day for the week before and threw a fit when it wasn't available just the day before. And so I stormed back into the kitchen with very little patience and said, You need to eat the cereal. And so I watched as she bravely tried to take a couple more 
jaw bites and satisfied I began to leave the room to go back to my work and then there's this moment where this heartbreaking little voice behind me just says, Daddy, it really doesn't taste very good at all. So I went back to the cereal and to show her that there was nothing wrong with the cereal, that it was perfectly fine. I took a bite and discovered that instead of liberally dosing it with sugar, I'd liberally dosed it with salt (laughs) instead. It just shows that for Gigi, Gigi? Uh, at least. (laughs) Oh man, I'm poorer, my bank account's going down. In that moment, there was such a thing as too much light and such a thing as too much salt. There's, there's, this, there's this way of doing life in the world that we are called to, we are called, we're told, as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to be salt and light. And yet perhaps you, like me, have wrestled with, well, what does that mean? And is there such a thing as too much salt? Is there such a thing as too much salt in the wrong place? Is there such a thing as too much light? How do you live this way of Jesus in a way that is attractive to the world around us and not intolerable? Because... Uh, <clears throat> According to Jonathan Pennington, the Sermon on the Mount is is what's called a guide to human flourishing in following Jesus. Uh, We're supposed to show something captivating to the watching world around us. The image of salt and light is probably evocative because we've seen it work in everyday life. We've seen what it is to, to see a filet mignon perfectly seasoned with salt come off a grill and sit and eat it and celebrate the beauty of food together. We've seen what it is to watch the sun come up and begin to shine along the front range and just to feel the warmth of its light. We know that salt and light seems like this captivating image, and yet, yet maybe if we're honest, we would say, I'm not sure exactly what Jesus meant by this. To, ke- to keep us all up to speed, we, we've been through this journey where we've looked at Jesus' surprising announcement that a whole bunch of people are, are what's called, in English, blessed, but perhaps a better word might be flourishing or celebrated. It's perhaps confusing to us because I think we, if we're honest, know who we think is blessed in the world around us. That question, who is blessed, isn't one that's particularly confusing. We know that surely the rich are blessed. Those that have fallen in love, got married, aren't they blessed? Those that have made a killing in their business, aren't they blessed? Those that have nothing to want for, aren't they blessed? We feel like we have that answered, and then Jesus comes along, and as we see, tells us a whole bunch of other people that don't fit. No, they're blessed, flourishing, to be congratulated as well. Our tension with who is blessed is, is revealed, I think, through this. How many of you tracked with this news story for a few days, right? It was a big thing, and tragically, five people, I think, lost their lives in this moment where this submarine, it felt like the whole world was watching this moment. And, and the moment it disappeared, what happened? Hundreds of ships, it seemed, have converged on the zone from all sorts of different places on the 18th of June, 2023. Equipment that wasn't available suddenly became available as all sorts of people looked for these five people that are tragically stuck somewhere in the midst of the ocean. 
And yet what I suggest, our, our sense of who is blessed can be revealed by the fact that just, just a few days earlier, this story was taking shape in the middle of the Mediterranean. 700 migrants trying to make their way from Af- Africa were on a ship that also went down. And while one or two ships came to try and help, one of them actually watched as the ship sank. And there was no equipment available to rescue people. And everyone but 80 of them died. And all we know simply is this, is that the captain's body was found. The first one is a story about people whose names were on every TV station and in every newspaper because we consider them blessed, I would suggest, part of the in crowd, part of the important people. And the other story is one of the people that are nameless who are not particularly known as important. Jesus makes surprising countercultural statements about who is blessed, and we've wrestled with those for the last couple of weeks. He said, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Congratulations to the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Congratulations to the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Congratulations to the poor in heart, for they will see God. Congratulations to the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Congratulations to those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes this statement of congratulations to all sorts of different people and seems to open the door for them to find a place in his new kingdom story that he is there to inaugurate. It seems at least for this moment, Jesus removes the boundary lines of who's included in God's blessing, who's accessible to a life of flourishing and starts to say, no, I am the center of this story and I'm pulling all people towards myself. This, friends, is good news. And then there's this moment where he starts to speak to his earliest followers directly. Congratulations to those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. We learned last week that actually, according to Jesus, when we talk about this church world or this Christian journey we're part of, persecution, whatever that might be in this day and age, is never supposed to be strange. It's actually sacred. We're actually entering into part of what Jesus said would happen to us. Tertullian, the historian, said this, if the Tiber rises too high, if the Nile is too, low, too high, the Nile is too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lion. Persecution has been a part of our story. And so last week I showed a picture, and I want to go back to this picture for a moment, because enough of you asked me about this story that I referenced. It's this story of a guy who made a cake. Uh, And some of the questions were, well, are you saying that this guy was a hero for not doing this? And some of you are saying, uh, was he not a hero for refusing to make a cake? He was asked to make one for someone in the LGBTQ community. And I I wrestled with that because uh, I don't mind being controversial. I don't love being unclear. So so the, the question was, well, what's the point? of that story? Are you saying that it was a good thing or a bad thing? And, and the answer is this. I wasn't saying either of those things. 
I would suggest that in following Jesus, every single person has to wrestle at times with what's the right thing to do in a specific situation. And sometimes that will make you popular. And sometimes it won't make you popular. And sometimes you'll get that right. And sometimes you'll get that wrong. But really the point with all of this was how do we or how should we see something that we might call persecution? How do we see that? And what I suggested last week is that the answer is whatever we think is happening, very rarely do we say congratulations to the person we think might be persecuted. Very rarely do we celebrate that moment and yet Jesus said somewhere, no, you are deeply to be congratulated because you're part of my kingdom story. How, how do we observe and how do we respond to persecution was the main point. And you might wrestle with something and come to a completely different conclusion than somebody else wrestling with the same thing. And that, my friends, is part of figuring out what God has called us to do in this moment, in this life. That's what we're invited to. And then after uh, talking through persecution, Jesus gives us this beautiful, well-known pericope. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. Jesus lived in a region, a broader region at least, that was famous for salt. About 140 uh, miles from Nazareth, about 40 miles from Jerusalem is the Dead Sea, known for its salt deposits that were shipped, even in that day and age, all over the place. He's using a well-known analogy, something that people would be familiar with. But, but we might ask this, well, what does he mean by salt? He declares that not you will be the salt of the earth, but you are the salt of the earth. This is who he says we are, and there's all sorts of different things, even in that culture, and it has this in common with today's culture that salt uh, could be. Salt preserves stuff. Perhaps is common is that we're meant to be a preservative in this world, we're meant to keep it pure. It's a bold statement when we see some of the state of the church, but maybe that's what its heartbeat is supposed to be, that's who we are meant to be. It also flavors, it gives life. If you've ever eaten something like the steak we referenced earlier without salt, you know that it's a completely different thing than when it's seasoned properly. Seasoned meat has this beauty beyond any meat without seasoning, and salt was used as a flavorant then, and it maybe it speaks to the way that the church is supposed to give life, it's supposed to color it, that Jesus' followers were supposed to give that as a gift to this world. And then salt also cleanses, it makes things clean. And maybe that's part of what Jesus means too. And then he says this, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so just like we are asking with salt, we, we might ask, well, what does Jesus mean by light? And just like salt, it has a few different potential illustrations. 
Light is something that guides in the midst of a place full of darkness. Light is something that shows you the way. Perhaps his emphasis is the church is supposed to be a guiding light to people that are lost in a very dark, very confusing world. Light encourages It lifts men's hearts. Perhaps you've been in that moment of a night, a dark night of the soul and you've seen physically the sun rise. You've had that moment with the clouds clear and and everything, your your soul lifts. It's joyful in a new way. And is that perhaps what Jesus means by being the light of the world? And then light also protects. It makes you safe. protects you from people that might attack in the midst of darkness. There's all these different sorts of metaphors. And as Jesus said, the light of the world, there's this physical element to that. He says a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And right next to where he was teaching in the area of Capernaum, there's a city called Safed that had been renovated by the Romans. And on a dark night, you would have stood around the Sea of Galilee and you could look up and see this city literally shining on top of a hill and it would be a landmark known to everybody around. You are the light of the world has this physical place as a city that he describes on a hill that was actually there in Jesus' time. All these sorts of different illustrations, all these different metaphors were well known to all sorts of different people, but Jesus takes these two things and he ties them firmly together. There's a symmetry in the language, a flow, uh, the salt, and there's light, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He seems to be saying the same thing in both of them. And so the question is, with all those metaphors, is there anything that overlaps? Is there anything that takes those metaphors and says the same thing through each of them? Is there any overlap that we might grab hold of and say, well, maybe this is what Jesus means at its core? And there is. Lost in a lot of our difference in language, there's a way that salt and light are used, and it's a way that we wouldn't use it for the most part in today's world. And the beautiful difficulty, as I've talked before, of of Bible translation is this. The more distant the culture gets from the the biblical culture, well, well, the, the harder it is to convey the idea. So much gets lost as we move forward in history. But in the Old Testament, both ideas, salt, and light are used for covenant in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, this idea of salt and light is present for both of those things. Now, even just today in this world, the idea of kind of understanding what a covenant is might be a bit of a challenge. The, the best example we probably have is just, is just marriage, which many of you have entered into. You made this covenant agreement to, to stay together through all sorts of different things, even though that can become this challenging moment so often. Both of these ideas, salt and light, find their place in the Old Testament. Check out these couple of passages. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, the scripture says this, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So think back to an Old Testament, a temple period. People would come, they would make a sacrifice. With that sacrifice, salt would be there. Not accidentally there, like in the case of Gigi's cereal, but actually intentionally there. It was part of what they were asked to do. In 2 Chronicles 13, one of the history books, we read, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship 
over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. There's this idea that salt is reflective of God's agreement with the world, his partnership with the world, his transformation of the world. And then when we turn to the book Isaiah, same thing with the term light. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. In the Old Testament, both salt and light meant God was doing something. They illustrated his covenant, his partnership with human beings. So think about what we're starting to read here early in the New Testament. We're starting to read that Jesus has come, that he isn't just a prophet like other prophets, he's doing something new and distinct. He isn't just reiterating what others have taught, he's beginning to teach his new kingdom come, his salvation come, his redemption come that changes everything. And he starts to say to his first followers, you who will be persecuted, you who will be potentially killed, you who will suffer for this kingdom, you are a marker of what God is doing in the world. When people look at you, when they see you, they'll see what life with God is meant to look like. You are a symbol of a new story that is happening. And when we come to this table later, remember that idea. You are salt. You are like God and Jesus does a completely new thing. He rewrites the old thing and creates something new. But while that's an idea about what it might mean, the fact is Jesus doesn't actually say specifically. He knew all of those illustrations, all those metaphors were floating around and perhaps he simply takes all of them and, and perhaps it doesn't matter that we know exactly what he means. Perhaps we might take this as his primary teaching point. Jesus' primary insistence is that his disciples will make a difference in the world. That people just like you and I will actually make a difference in our place and space in this world. That means a couple of things. It's, it's no good to just re withdraw to a monastery. That's, that's not what he's talking about. And yet you can't just look indistinguishable from the world around you. The challenging point seems to be this, that you and I are meant to look different to the people that don't yet know this God. The, the way of Jesus is supposed to look like flourishing. It's supposed to capture people's attention, sometimes in a way that will be negative, sometimes in a way that will be challenging because people don't like that way of living, but, but it's always supposed to have this dissonance with the world around it. There's, there's this moment in the passage that we just read that always intrigues me, because Jesus does something. Up until now, when he's done his big announcements, these countercultural statements, he's always used the third person. He's always said they. Not in, not in a dismissive way, not in a way that says that, that, that people don't matter, but he said something like, blessed are they who mourn. It's somebody else. It's external from the group that's having this conversation. And now he's gonna make this switch. In verse 11, the part where he starts talking about persecution, all the way through the section where he talks about salt and light, Jesus switches from third person to second person. Instead of saying they, he starts saying you. Starts saying you, starts to suggest that people like you and I 
were called to be salt and light. The disciples in front of him, broken mess of people that they are. And, and let us remind ourselves how, how, how poorly they display his way so often. But he starts to say, no, you, you are salt and light. But not just you. It's not individual at this point. Starts to do something beautiful with his language here. Or at least Matthew starts to record it as something beautiful. Starts to use this term that's second person, plural. It's a term that we don't really use anymore. How, how many of you have used the term ye recently? Like ye, 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 ye are something. Probably not, right? But, but I'm guessing some of you have used this other term which best explains what Jesus is doing here. How many of you have used the term y'all? Y'all. I actually gathered to my sort of discussion group, a southern gentleman, uh, so I could try and learn to say this word that so far has escaped me in terms of learning your ways. And so he said, it helps if you add all to the front of it. So this is, this is what he told me to say. He said, you gotta say like, all y'all. All y'all. This, this nice southern gentleman told me, you say all y'all. My wife always tells me I can't do American accents. She says, the rest of the world is your, your oyster, but American accents, no, that, that's not for you. Jesus specifically chooses to not use a singular term for us being salt and light. He uses a group term. You. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You, south. Not you individuals, maybe that's true as well, but, but no, it's, it's group, it's plural, it's inclusive of the people that are listening. You disciples, you are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, which when you think about how we learn to be human is a fascinating insight. Uh, I kept my stick figure from last week uh, to try and help us to understand this because every one of us, I would suggest, begins with this individualistic view of the world, which is actually fine and fairly good because you and I were supposed to be fairly healthy human beings. So maybe you grew up with, hopefully you grew up with parents that were good. And I, I know that's not everybody's story, but, but think about growing up. Your parents probably tried and your teachers probably tried to give you this fairly good sense of identity. Uh, how did they do that? They, they told you, no, you can do things. You, you, can, you can be brave. You, you can achieve things. You can be good at things. Perhaps you had this moment where you raced with your dad or an uncle or a, a friend of your parents. And, uh, and there's this moment where they kind of almost let you win. And maybe they just beat you in the last foot or maybe they let you beat them by just a little bit. And some of you maybe had that parent that just decimated you and just like made sure that you knew you were nowhere close to them. But, but there's this way of bringing up a child that, that says, no, 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 you can achieve things. The parent isn't saying that the child is actually faster than them. And then there's, for some kids, this heartbreaking moment where they find out that the parent wasn't trying at all in all their years. But it's all designed to, to give you this sense of, I have an identity, and I have value, and I can participate in things. But eventually, there's supposed to be a movement, right? It's not supposed to stay there. Eventually, just to be part of a healthy society, there's supposed to be this movement to being part of something perhaps a family, perhaps an organization, perhaps a church, community, perhaps a business, but there's supposed to be this moment where you bring what you have to something that's bigger than you. You become part uh, of a we. 
And we get to see that in all sorts of places. We get to see it in sports teams. We get to see it in places that you come from. We can do this for just a moment around this idea. Like, how many of you identify with this term? How many natives in the room? Like, some? I love it. I thought there was only 10 of you, so that's good. That's encouraging. But, but for a moment, let's split the room and say, on this half, we have natives. And in this half, we have not natives. And I know for some of you natives, you're like, wow, you put me in the non-native category. That, that actually hurts my sense of identity. And some of you guys over here are like, wait, there's, there's non-natives in my group with me? I don't love that. But, but for a moment, let's just think about that divide. And, and if that one doesn't work for you, think about another way that you see society divided. You become part of something, and that's healthy. But it's also limited because you're supposed to be part of something bigger than just your individual group. And so to help us understand that, just imagine for a moment that you get this strong group identity and you're celebrating that you are this group of people identified as not native to Colorado and you over here, you're the native group and you're like, we know who we are. And imagine then you see someone over the other side, grab some food and swallow it and start to choke. What's your reaction? in that moment. Hopefully in that moment, as a member of the human species, what you don't say is, ha, good. A non-native is choking, (laughs) and that's a great thing. Hopefully you don't look and say one of those like exclusive, like native types that always goes on about how great they are, like one of them's choking, that's a good thing. No, hopefully what you do is if you're able, you dash across the aisle and you start to do something to alleviate what's going on. You start to do something to bring them back from the point of death. It's this moment where you recognize your group identity isn't the most important thing and you've made this journey from me to we to world or perhaps you might say to everybody. It's, it's bigger than just the group identity. The terms for this might be me-centric, ethnocentric, geocentric. It's this progression that hopefully happens and a progression that I would suggest Jesus does beautifully here with his disciples. Jesus leads his followers on a journey from me to we to everybody. He leads his followers on a journey from me to we to everybody. He calls them from all sorts of different places. And then he says to them, you, y'all are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You're gonna be part of this big story that I'm unpacking here for the world around you, but specifically for that reason. Not for you, not just so you can stay as this tight-knit little group forever, but so you can be a gift to those outside of this place, outside of this circle, so you can transform the world around you. Whenever we come across scripture, one of the questions we might ask is, well, what should we do here? And on one hand, it seems like Jesus doesn't say to do anything. He says you are the salt of the earth. He says you are the light of the world. But he does give this warning that there's a way that we can live that might diminish it. In the first paragraph, he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And there's a fascinating language piece going on here that we don't have time for. And so we have a podcast. If you want to come listen to it, we'd love to share it on the podcast with you. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled 
underfoot. In the second one, he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Somewhere he hints at the fact that there's a way to live that that doesn't express this. That we can almost opt ourselves out of this gift that God has given to the world, this picture of salt and light. So when we think about how we can obey it, how we can put it into practice, how we can do it, I would suggest this little phrase encapsulates what we might be asked to do. And so this is what I remind myself as I'm part of this community. I bring me to we. I bring me to we. I take that identity that I have, the fact that I believe God has gifted me, that he's shaped me for something, and I say, Jesus, beautifully in this moment, what you didn't say is Alex Walton is center of everything. What you didn't say is Alex Walton is made to change the world by himself. What you said is you called him to be part of a community. You called him to bring his gifts, his resources to this thing, and it was supposed to be something beautiful for the world. And I would suggest he says the same to every single one of you. Whether you feel gifted, whether you feel wealthy, whether you feel important, whatever it is, he says, no, you, you're called to be part of this thing. I bring me to we, but not just so we can be this great little group, this great little church. I bring me to we for this seemed to have stopped working. Someone took over. They said they were gonna do this at the back. We got something going on and now they've done it. And uh, there we go. I bring me to we for the sake of the world, for the sake of this world that Jesus loves, so that we as a community can represent salt and light, so we can be one of many voices together. And so for a second, I invite you as we prepare to come to this table to watch this video that represents just some of the beauty and extent that South is. We are the light of the world. 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 We are the light of the We are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Nous sommes la lumière du monde. We are the light of the world. Nefna Nur El Alam.
so on this beautiful day where we celebrate all that the food bank has been for 40 years, where we celebrate what it is to be partnering with people all over the world, what we get to celebrate is that when Jesus says, y'all are the light of the world, when he uses this beautiful plural term, he says you. Not you as individuals, you. You are the light of the world. And here's the challenging part, the part that I have to wrestle with regularly. When I revert to me, it weakens we. When I revert to me, it weakens me. When I become overprotective with what God has given me, it weakens we. There's a shift that happens that isn't healthy. And so here's the part where I get to challenge a community in a way that loads of churches find awkward, but we're told not to. One of the things I've noticed here over the last couple of years is this is that we've struggled to stay healthy in a couple of ways. In grouping, we do pretty good. We have lots of people in groups. But when it comes to serving and giving, we actually struggle. And I would suggest it is for so many of the reasons we just looked at. It's because we regularly, if we're honest, we we revert to I and we withdraw me from the we. And so here's a challenge for you. How is God calling you to participate in this community? Is there a new thing for you to do? Is there a way that you might say, I've sat on the sidelines for a long time and I actually have a call to be part of this because when I'm not involved, the we part, it gets diminished. Something is missing. And is there something for you to give. One of the fascinating things with South is when we talk about giving, almost all of our giving comes from just a really small percentage of the community. And so when I looked, I did, I did this kind of deep dive because I wanted to know, was it healthy to challenge this community? And what I saw was this, I actually asked someone who knows a lot about this kind of stuff, is, is, is the budget we've set for South, is it, is it actually unreasonable? And he looked at our numbers and the people that come and he said, no. It's not unreasonable in the slightest. We have about 200 people that give to this community and as we say all the time, we are so grateful for that. But actually for about 100 people that give, they average about $50 a month. And if that's what you can give, man, we are so, I am so grateful. But I also know that means this, that there's probably a bunch of us that if we're honest would say this, I see giving as something like I think about a gym membership. I actually had a friend tell me that at some point. He was like, that's what I'm willing to give. And yet what I had to decide a while back was this. That's not how I see South. That's not how I see this community. I see it as more than that. I see it as more. And so a while back, I noticed just this weird quirk of my bank account. There's this charge that goes out every month for 34 cents. And it's recurring over and over and over and over and over and over. And it just doesn't matter that much. So I've never bothered to fix it. And if you would say, honestly, the way I give from uh, who I am and what I have to all sorts of places, I'm not just talking about here. If it reflects something that you could just do forever and it wouldn't bother you at all, that's probably not what God calls generosity. And so if it's not here, you need to find it somewhere. Because this great kingdom that God has given made you to be the salt of the earth, made you to be the light of the world. And when you hold it, when you diminish it, you not only diminish yourself, but you diminish the we as well. 
So one of the things I looked at in that number there that I just showed you is this. We're three months into our year and we're already $30,000 behind in our giving. That means to match, to keep up with that, around 100 families would have to give an extra $100 a month. No, more than that. 100 families would have to give $100 a month or 50 families would have to give an extra $200 a month. And so one of the ways that Laura and I have embraced giving is this. Our giving is hard for us, it's tough. And there's moments where I look and say, I wish we weren't doing that. And there's moments where I say, do you know what? I don't think I should give any more because I think that there's other people that could. And yet what I decided was this, that out of those 100 or 50 families, we were gonna be one of them because I love South and I want it to be the light of the world and I want it to be more than it is. And one of the things I know is this, is that that number has kept me up at nights and that's not meant to make you feel guilty. None of this is meant to make you feel guilty. But I, but I believe that every week there's opportunities that come across our door and I say no to them because I say I don't know if we can sustain that. I don't know if we can support that. And that's not who I want us to be. We were called to do what Jesus did, which is to give everything for this kingdom. They've stolen my thing again. When I revert to me, when I revert to me, I think it definitely weakens we. And we're told this in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus, as we come to this table, help us to respond to the call to be part of this we story, this thing that is south, this thing that is called to participate with churches all over the world, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. And for each person in the midst of this, there's some people that give so generously out of their little, and I'm so thankful. So God, would you comfort the afflicted? And then there's some of us, if we're honest, would say this. I actually am more interested in extracurricular stuff, more interested in eating out three times a week, more interested in holding what I have for me. And that's not what you call me to. So for those of us that are comfortable, would you afflict us? And if this isn't the place that we love, that we're called to support and cherish, if this thing that disciples the next generation, that raises up leaders, that supports things all over the world, that feeds those that are hungry, isn't that thing, help us to find it somewhere. Because you made us for more than a me. You made us a we for the sake of the world. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.